Transcripts for this week's episodes are provided by Starburst. Please do check out their Data Mesh Resource Center as linked in the show notes. Thanks. As per usual for these episodes, you can hear the bottom line upfront summations of the interviews at the end of this uh, section. This is also a call to action. The community needs more people to step up. Any place I am involved, it becomes people looking to me. That's bad. I'm becoming a bottleneck. We have to decentralize the community. We need more people stepping up. And stepping up doesn't have to be um, something that's a huge, huge commitment. You know, please look to give half an hour to the community every week, every other week, something like that. And you absolutely can make a name for yourself and advance your career by doing this. Check the Slack announcements channel for more information. So what are the episodes going to be this week? We're going to have four this week. On Monday, we'll have Skipping the Fluff of Domain-Driven Design for Data with Data Mesh, which is an interview with Lorenzo Nicora. Lorenzo and I continued my series of interviews on Domain-Driven Design, or DDD, for data. There's some great content around DDD, including what you can skip when thinking about applying DDD to data, but there's also some really good points about how to approach your data mesh proof of concept as well. I think Lorenzo has some really, really useful tips and tidbits in there that everybody should take a look at. On Tuesday, we'll have Overcoming Obstinate Organizational Obstacles in Data Mesh, which is an interview with Scott Hawkins. I just decided the alliteration would be fun. It's very difficult to say, but it's it's fun to, to look at. So... This is probably the most helpful episode on very specific tactics for getting through organizational roadblocks. I think you'll learn a lot, lot, lot from this episode. Uh, Scott, who's a principal data architect, shares a lot of his learnings and some really useful insights on ITV's data mesh journey so far. Like I said, I think if you're having organizational challenges, this gives you probably as much as as you know, any five episodes combined for your toolbox on cha- taking down those organizational challenges. On Wednesday, uh, there's going to be a mesh musing inspired by someone who had reached out uh, last week asking me, you know, how can I build my data mesh using you know, this tool? It's going to be about differentiating the baby from the bathwater. There's an English phrase talking about don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So what should you really toss out uh, when it comes to doing your data mesh implementation and what is totally okay to keep around that you've had around in your your historical approach to data. The quick preview is that it's great to reuse tools that you know and love. People already know how to use them. People already like them. (laughs) You don't have to start from scratch, but you absolutely need to rethink how you set them up. Just trying to switch up an existing implementation of a data lake or, or data warehouse over to being the storage layer for data mesh isn't going to work. If it, if it was centralized, you set things up with different parameters. So you can, again, you can use those tools. You can reuse what you've got from a, a learning standpoint, but you need to rethink how you've implemented those tools specifically. On Friday, we'll have evaluating if data mesh is a fit slash team structures slash WTF is Federated Computational Governance, with which is an interview with Marius Inger. So Marius, who spent most of his career as a developer, shared his, his insights as a consultant implementing data mesh right now, especially regarding evaluating if data mesh is even a fit. And 
also how team structures can work or really not work in a data mesh implementation. We also discussed the fact that governance is just too broad of a term in general. So adding in the federated and computational parts makes it even more overloaded of a term and how we can start to kind of chunk that up and and really think about that. So there's going to be a lot of good uh, things to go over this week. As a reminder, the Patreon is, uh, it exists. You can find the link in the show notes. That's going to have probably by the end of this week, I think it'll have something like 16 or or so unreleased episodes. So um, especially if you're looking for information on specific topics or things like that, it's going to be your best bet for finding ones that are there. And it also means if you're uh, a subscriber, you get to kind of tell me where you want me to focus my uh, next set of interviews and things like that. Like what are the topics? So you get a lot more control if you're doing that. So please do check it out, put it on a corporate credit card because you know, you shouldn't have to pay for this yourself because this is valuable to your companies as well. So with that, uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, cue the intro music, and then you can hear the bottom line up front for the three different interview episodes this week. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Lorenzo Nicora, Principal Data Consultant at Data Mesh and AI-focused consultancy Mesh-AI. He wanted to emphasize that they are also hiring. <laughs> I asked Lorenzo to be on to continue the series of interviews on domain-driven design, or DDD, for data. You will hear DDD a lot, so just map that in your head to domain-driven design. It is a topic that many are struggling with in data mesh, so having lots of perspectives on it is crucial, in my opinion. On the episode title specifically, a key output from this interview was explicit permission to skip a lot of the tactical patterns of DDD, which is where a lot of people really get bogged down. Others have also said similar things, but I wanted to make sure it was explicit that you can skip these things. Before we jump into the DDD parts, Lorenzo made a really, really good point on your data mesh proof of concept slash starting your journey. You need to start with manageable problems. Start with a consumer-driven problem, but a source slash producer-aligned data product. There's some real nuance there that uh, goes into more in the episode, but essentially start with a bit of a narrow scope of your first you know, data product or few data products that are fit for purpose, but that are not a downstream of what will become data products. Deriving a lot of data for a consumer aligned data product before having those source slash producer aligned data products will likely lead to many headaches. If you go for too big or too complicated early, it is much harder to prove value. Again, there's a lot of nuance in there, but I think it's covered well in the episode. Per Lorenzo, identifying the domains is crucial, but it is the hardest part of domain-driven design. That shouldn't scare you because you can start with things being a bit blurry. Many are trying to bite off more than they can chew and do too much upwork front when it comes to DDD for data. It's important to understand your high-level domains, but you can get moving without mapping out all of your domains and subdomains and things like that. 
a key theme for Lorenzo and one that was emphasized a lot by Andrew Harmel Law in his DDD for Data episode with Danilo Sato is that the language is at the center of everything in DDD. It is part of the data modeling and it goes all the way down to the code. We'll get into that a little bit more later. DDD is all about communication, knowledge capture, and knowledge sharing. Those might seem to be a lot overlapping, but really, I I don't think they are. Knowledge capture is about extracting knowledge and then, you know, writing it down, actually capturing it. Knowledge sharing is about finding scalable ways to share that knowledge, to share that context. It's not just writing it down. It's making sure it's accessible and putting it in front of people. Communication permeates, but it is really important to emphasize how crucial it is to getting DDD for data and data mesh right in general. So many of the kind of hacks that we hear uh, on this show are just getting people to talk to each other. <laughs> um, some advice and pointers from Lorenzo. You know, Number one, teams have to truly understand the language of their own domain. Remove the ambiguities. Even if that feels like it's putting in too much work, if it's being too kind of pedantic, you really have to remove those ambiguities, especially before you start to talk to other teams. Number two, event storming is a great way to approach tackling DDD for data. Number three, event sourcing is crucial for modeling the problems of the domain. And I'll be honest, I'm still a little confused between event sourcing and event storming. So if anybody else is too, I get it. Number four, terminology is very key. Identify the domain experts who can find slash choose the right name for each concept. It really is important to get this language right. And I'll admit, I, I struggle very mightily at that. So if others do, I totally get you, but it's important to really focus on this. Number five, keep a live document of terms and meanings for each domain and keep it updated. Number six, as somewhat covered earlier, encourage everyone to use the identified terminology when naming things and in the code directly. Number seven, find your high-level domains first instead of trying to find all your granular subdomains. It's okay, again, for that to be blurry as you're moving forward. Number eight, ask your consumers for their specific data asks, and then back into what would be a good data product or set of data products to really start with. And again, look for high return, low effort slash low investment to get some wins under your belt and build your muscle memory as you're getting going. Some key things to understand that I took from this conversation and some that Lorenzo specifically said, Number one, language changes. It changes across time and across the organization. The same words mean different things or different words mean the same things. And again, that can be from domain to domain or as time moves, things can change. Abhisiv Asylum mentioned something similar in his episode around the evolution of the word order at Flexport. A major weakness of the central slash enterprise data warehouse is the inability to easily deal with changes through time or that nuance across the organization. You're trying to fit everything into a single centralized model, so you can't really have that nuance very easily. Number two, 
when you first identify your domains, the domains might be blurry and that's okay. Talked about it multiple times in this in this uh, intro. It's okay to not have everything perfect up front. You need to have your bearings and really get going. Number three, data contracts are really crucial and the semantic issues, not the schema, are the most important and the hardest part. And you can't just break your contracts. There has to be a reason why you're breaking them or no one will trust it is an actual contract instead of just a pub-sub model with some versioning where you just go, eh, we're moving to the next version. You have to think about this as if you're actually making a contract and you can change the terms of those contracts, but you have to have that communication and people have to trust that you're going to do your best to actually serve the purpose of the contract. Number four, study up on and really think about your data on the inside versus data on the outside concept. If you aren't familiar, there's a link in the show notes to Pat Helen's work on the concept. Uh, this comes up over and over and over in a lot of these data mesh chats. So I think really getting your arms around what data on the inside, data on the outside really means. And that can also start to, to help you think about where your domain boundaries are. So this is a really, really valuable one. Again, I, I think all of the ones around domain-driven design for data. So the one that was very early on with Paolo Plotter, the one with um, Andrew Harmel Law and Danilo Sato, the one with Pitain Strangholt, and this one, I think they're really important for getting your arms around data mesh. So with that, I think you'll enjoy this one and let's jump in. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed the other Scott H. in the data mesh community, Scott Hawkins, Principal Data Architect at ITV. I asked Scott what he wanted to talk about, and he said, organizational challenges, and, and boy, did he deliver. I'll start with the most important bit to me first, as Scott really crystallized a few things on driving buy-in for me. There are three good ways to drive buy-in for the domain teams. First, at the senior level. So it trickles down as the management for the team is bought in they can help to redirect the prioritization. Number two, via a strong carrot. Solve a problem for them as kind of a quid pro quo, mutually beneficial solution type of thing. You're saying, hey, if you give us this data, we're going to help you execute on X or Y or Z. Trying to solve a sort of helpful but unrelated problem will drive lower buy-in. And number three, I think this is one that's really going to be something that people are should be leveraging, which was work on realigning the team KPIs slash OKRs with the senior leaders to actually realign those incentives. It kind of feels obvious after it was stated because we've been talking about aligning incentives, but this was absolutely the first time I've heard it messaged anywhere near this clearly. It, it really is about making it so that the teams know that this matters and not just by going to them and telling them it matters. You go and, and you get that exec level buy-in so you can realign these incentives and you make it, you put it, you, you put the proof out there that this matters and that this matters to the organization. There are a lot of other useful nuggets too. 
Scott views data mesh as a mechanism for change, and I agree. Your company culture and your understanding of said culture are crucial to establishing data mesh well, driving that buy-in. You need to ask yourself, what challenges does data mesh actually address and hopefully solve for us? How will it impact the business, not just our tech stack and things like that? And what does it change? Your organization might not be ready for data mesh, or a specific domain might not be ready, and that's okay. What is the organization or domain really ready to take on? ITV was in a distributed but kind of cohesive environment. Scott mentioned there were five different departments all managing content, but all had totally, well, all had slightly different definitions of what content really meant. So they were all trying to work together somewhat, but it it really wasn't working all that well. As they moved forward with their data mesh implementation, they found a quote unquote good enough solution via a global ID. It's not perfect. There might be some overlap, such as one person might have a different global ID for their online subscription versus their broadcast subscription. And ITV is a broadcaster in uh, the UK. But you know, with this global ID, it is far better than what they were doing. And, and it allows for interoperability joins and joins across the data. This is a big imp- improvement. I think this is, again, a don't let perfect be the enemy of good or done, right? Is the global ID absolutely perfect? Can it identify one person, you know, no matter what, and that person only has one ID? No. But is that really the worst thing that could happen? No. So use it and move forward. One thing working for ITV is deploying a team in a box to help domains move forward, similar to kind of an internal consulting team that drops in to help them kind of move forward. Each situation is different, so each quote-unquote box that they are given is different. But it means domains don't feel this new wave of responsibilities without help and guidance. The team in a box is the answer to what is the most effective way to get to a viable data product? You know, you may want your teams to fully discover the way that they would uh, put out their own data products and everything becomes this very unique picture. But there are a couple of reasons why this works. One, again, is that the teams don't feel like they're being asked to do a bunch of things without the resourcing. And the second is that it helps ITV to really build common best practices internally because there's a lot of teams that are, there there are these teams in a box that are involved with a lot of different domains and getting them to kind of see things in the same way. So there's that cohesiveness. Coming to the table with defaults has also really helped. You know, what what is this uh, kind of quote unquote standard data product look like? On the driving buy-in, Scott recommends working with the domain managers to generate a viable carrot for the entire team. Explain to those leaders why it matters. Work with the leaders to revamp the KPIs, as mentioned earlier, if the KPIs are getting in the way of delivering a good data product. This is why that exec level buy-in is so crucial. It's pretty hard to start modifying team KPIs or OKRs without that exec level buy-in. You don't have the power to just go in and say, hey, team, we're going to modify your KPIs unless you have the power to do so. 
It's important to talk to teams to understand how they, the individual and the group, operate. It's, it's crucial to developing the right path for them. Angelo Martelli mentioned some similar things on driving buy-in in his episode, in his four pillars of driving buy-in framework. Another common thread that Scott talked about is making failure an option. You can try to work with a domain, and, and if it isn't working, it's okay to move on from that domain. You don't need to get everyone on board on day one or sharing their data on day one. If you design incentives well, people will want to participate eventually. Until then, it's okay to walk away from that team if it's just not working. Overall, you're going to get a lot of really good nuggets out of this one, and I think it's going to be very, very helpful for folks, especially ones that are stuck on that buy-in issue. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Marius Inger, a developer turned consultant who has been working with a few clients on implementing data mesh at his extremely Norwegian named company, Nurkafrit AS. We covered three distinct topics, evaluating if data mesh is a fit for your organization, team structure challenges in data mesh, or data mesh-like implementations, and just what the heck is federated computational governance. On evaluating if data mesh is right for you, there is the common answer of look at your company size and the number slash complexity of your domain. If you aren't big and don't have complex domains, data mesh is going to be overkill. Where exactly that line starts to cross as to how big and how many domains and how complex they have to be it gets a little fuzzy, but really it's it's kind of measuring what's really causing any data problems you're seeing. And yes, every company wants to get to sharing data, but the centralized data team isn't the bottleneck yet for a lot of companies. Centralization can add a lot of value until it starts to become more hurtful than helpful. And yes, figuring out that point is easier said than done. Centralization of data does fight Conway's law and can become too much cognitive load as well. So kind of looking for those things is is key. So back to measuring if data mesh is right for you. A key question is, what is the cost of allowing your data processes to fail? The business consequence of failed reports has historically not been all that high. But if you are driving business decisions, whether that is ML or just crucial day-to-day decisions on your data, Data mesh might become more attractive because that cost of your data failing is significantly higher. Marius provided a great list of evaluation questions that can help you really evaluate your current state of of where you are with data. If you feel comfortable with the answers, data mesh is probably not the solution to your current data woes. So those questions would be, How many data sets are you producing? What is the lead time to creating a new data set? How well are your data sets serving your data needs? How many domains do you have? How complex are those domains? How does the team respond to new data requirements? And how usable in general is your data? So again, there isn't a specific rubric. Bar Moses had provided one in a... uh, 
one of her early posts on Data Mesh from kind of uh, mid uh, 2020. So if you want to go check that out, there's there's some good things in there around a rubric. But a lot of these questions are really like, what might be causing your your data challenges, and is it really that this centralization is the problem? Second topic we covered was about team structure challenges in data mesh and data mesh-like implementations. In general, it's important to know that implementing data mesh will cause cultural challenges. Marius believes, and you know this has been reiterated by a lot of folks, developers generally don't want to also have to share their data. It's additional work, so you have to align incentives, which is far easier said than done. The additional cognitive load on developer plates is really crucial to understand and, and to empathize with. We need to make sure we are aware of that to not burn them out. This means realigning those incentives again, but also having extra help doing things like grooming the backlog. A- extra resources helps, but that is more about tackling the work, not handling the increased cognitive load. And learning about how to do data well is a pretty big learning task, honestly. Marius recommends giving teams the extra resources, but also reshape the the team and business structure, such as the KPIs to effectively prioritize and shape your general requirements of what you want your teams to do. He also recommends having a stick, not just carrots, or teams will try to just opt out. Marius also made the point that if your team isn't well-structured already, a chaotic structure will make data mesh extremely difficult at best. You did talk about giving teams autonomy or agency or whatever when you think about how to actually structure your teams. And I think that's important as well, is to talk about what each team needs to provide as requirements and give them the resources to actually accomplish that, but kind of give them the ability to choose exactly how they want to do that. Jessatron in her uh, interview also said a lot of the same things. We finished the conversation on the the fun, quote unquote, topic of federated computational governance. It's a biggie. And when talking about it with developers right now, it feels far too complex. I think when talking about it with anybody, it kind of feels far too complex. We discussed some ways to make it less complex by reducing the friction to developer decisions, but not really adding much to their cognitive load. An example might be providing easy data masking tooling for PII or extensible data API so developers can focus on the value add instead of a lot of the nuts and bolts. Per Marius, when something like governance is too complex, developers will at best get it wrong and often try to skip it entirely. This is why shadow IT exists everywhere. So spend the time to make it much easier for developers. And developers need to understand the governance team is there as an enabler, not as just a set of rules to adhere to and a confluence page. You know, it's that this is a team that's there to help instead of just put up gates that they have to go 